This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Yossi Klein-Halevi. He is a journalist and fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel. I spoke with him on March 13, 2011, at his office in Jerusalem. This interview is included in our show, Thin Places, Thick Realities. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. And he was trying to bring the academy together with with uh, with the, with orthodoxy, and um, I think it's and it's since become a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the very powerful functions of the institute is is its role in the army. Um, right. I wanted I mean, you were you were mentioning that. So, so tell me how that came about. Well, I think there was this feeling that um, that. This is a, um, it's the army of the Jewish people, and it needs to have Jewish values. Mm-hmm. And the army was very receptive to mm-hmm. that. It didn't always know how to go about that. Armies are, you know. Yeah. And uh, so uh, the Institute invited uh, the upper echelons of... Uh, and these are, these are commanders in the field. So it's quite extraordinary mm-hmm. to see them coming in, and they bring their ethical dilemmas into the, uh, wow, the text study. right. And, you know, what happens if you're in Gaza and there's a terrorist yeah. shooting from a house and there's a family in the house? And they know? bring the tradition to those yeah. questions. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's quite something. Uh-huh. And, um, and that's, yeah. people know that that's not confidential. It's not something oh, yeah, that's happening yeah, under yeah. the radar. So, that's another thing I wondered when you mentioned it as if it's no, no, publicized. No, no, no. No, this is, uh, yeah. it's, it's, so, so Hartman really operates, I'd say, on, uh, on different levels. And... Um, it also brings um, Jewish education values, texts into secular yeah. high schools, uh, and it does it in a way that's not missionizing. Right. <laughs> so that kind of conforms with secular norms. Right. But how do you bring in uh, Judaism into uh, the Israeli school system? Yeah. So. Uh, Which, uh, for outsiders, would would probably seem like a strange question that has to be uh, asked, right? right? I mean, people who don't understand how it works here. Right. Um, no, the, the secular school system is understandably very wary yeah. of, uh, of religious education. Well, of course, we have our own version of that in the States. Right. It's quite different, but, but yeah. I think Americans actually do have an experience of how heated right. and emotional that kind of right. conflict becomes. Right, right. I'd say that the difference here is that most Israelis want their kids to have exposure to Judaism. They just don't want it to come in a, in a missionizing form. Right, right. So. Okay, well, I think we're... Yeah, let's record. Let's just start recording. Can just make sure we have all our phones off? Oh, I may not have mine off. I got a phone call from Minnesota you look like you're you're dressed for the interview more than I am. Okay. <laughs> 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 
So, um, so for I have to say that it's a little bit strange to interview you and be sitting across right? from you. Right, I was thinking the because, same thing. Because here you are, right? Uh, <laughs> the disembodied voice. I of know, radio. and I feel like uh, I don't have much of a roadmap today. I, I really just want to uh, re- run things by you in terms mm-hmm. of what we're experiencing, and also react. Or probe a little deeper into some of the things that were, that were said last night. We were with you with a group of American journalism students. And, um, but also, I see this as a continuation of a conversation we began back at the end of 2001, I think, or maybe right. early 2002, right. when I interviewed you as a disembodied voice uh, about um, your early life. Uh, I mean, really, your trajectory from being a... Holocaust survivor, your father was your father was a Holocaust survivor, and mm-hmm. that infusing your identity and uh, dabbling in Jewish extremism, moving mm-hmm. to Israel, your spiritual journey and uh, and then we spoke again. Do you think this was two thousand six? It was after it was in that tumultuous moment when Hamas had come to power and Sharon had gone into a coma and the wall was going up, right? right? right. And uh, and that was a hard discussion, too. That's what I recall, too. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, what I, what I mean by that is uh, your book, um, At the Entrance to the Garden of Eden, was such a beautiful and hopeful book in many ways. Um, and I, I recommend it to people all the time still. Um, You're the one. <laughs> <laughs> and you had said to me now that I mean that that even by the time that book was published and the pub date was September 11th, 2001, you couldn't have written the same book. I mean, the second right. Intifada was happening. But then when we spoke again in 2006, um, I, I I was really aware of your pain and grief, and that that even there was a despair. Um, there was a there was a there was a distance even from that experience of praying and with your skull cap on in mosques and mm-hmm. uh, Palestinian mosques. Um, that journey you'd undertaken, and uh, and you were there was the pain was there for you too. So here we are. What are we? Five years later. I can't believe that. Hmm. Um. And we're here, and uh, you know, one one place I just wanted to start is by running something by you. This is it's a it's a simple sentence that uh, someone uttered yesterday when we were on the, a tour of the old city with this group of uh, journalism students. And um, so, let me just lay, set the scene, which will be very familiar to you. We have somebody who's we hired to help us here organize things here on the ground. He is a Palestinian with an Israeli passport. Uh, our tour guide yesterday of the old city was a Palestinian Christian. Uh, and then without an Israeli passport. Without an Israeli passport. <laughs> a, a, Jeru- a citizen of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which is then another... But, you know, it was interesting because he was showing us the old city and it took about 15 minutes. He, he was a, um, an objective tour guide for about 15 minutes. And then, when, and, then, <laughs> and then at a certain point, I think when we were in the Armenian quarter and he was telling us about how on Easter, on Easter Sunday, um, there's a military presence in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and Christians aren't allowed to worship there on that day. And, and then he, he transitioned into the language of we, we Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, we Christians are peaceful people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
and we then proceeded to get it was very clear um just as it was clear with with our with our other colleague we hired that you know we're getting we're getting a way of seeing mm-hmm. something very complex and it's true with you too right. and you admit that so right. so this, this sentence i don't remember who uttered it there are no facts here. <laughs> At one point, our tour guide of the old city, when I realized we were really out of that realm when he would say, this is a fact. <laughs> and it does seem true, Yossi, that, uh, you know, there are so many different histories and experiences uh, that, that create ways of living Facts that render the facts different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and it's a yeah, very yeah, strange I, experience for someone coming in from the outside. You know, I think that one of the, the motives that I had for going on my journey into Islam and Christianity in this land was to try to expand um, my, my, um, my file of facts and to try to incorporate... And the, actually, uh, could you draw up a list of true facts, yes, <laughs> whatever that means? And, and to really be, and to try to to understand really how other communities here experience the same history and the same events. And in 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 a sense, I think that our our reality is a kind of a Rashomon, and and it's it's not necessarily that there are different facts, but there are such radical radically different interpretations mm-hmm. of those same facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, uh, for me, as, a, as an American Jew who came home, and that's the language that I use, uh, I am part of, a, of a, an indigenous people that is being repatriated. Uh, for Palestinians, uh, I'm part of a colonialist wave that's, uh, that's, that's threatening their sense of home. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I, I was trying, in, in some sense, in this journey, to um, really to, to step out of my comfort zone and see how the same set of facts looks through other eyes. But, you know, you mentioned uh, that, that I, I had said to you that I, I would not have been able to write that book uh, after the collapse of the peace process and the suicide bombings began, and that's true, but I'm really grateful that I was able to do it before that happened. Well, and... You know, to that point, I absolutely understand what you say, what you mean when you say you couldn't write the book now, and yet I think the book continues to have value as you wrote it. You know, sometimes I'll pick it up and, uh, and just briefly, at random, open it up and read out an experience and just be amazed. I said, wow, you know, that... That happened to me. It didn't happen to to someone else. So, um, say yeah. your, some of your experiences of shared prayer or something. I mean, those are some of the most um, really moving. Sections. And it reminds me of of not just what's possible, but what once actually happened. Mm-hmm. And that uh, so that I, I I wouldn't say that I'm in despair. I wouldn't I wouldn't use that stronger language. I certainly don't feel that peace is possible anytime soon. But I, I have to believe uh, that this reality is not going to be permanent. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it stands as a testament for you of what really happened, for others of what is possible, what was possible, yes. what should, could, right. must, really must be possible again. Yes. Um, 
So here's something else I want to talk to you about, the whole notion of identity. Um, and, you know, I think uh, we were sitting with you with uh, a group of 20-something aspiring journalists, and I, I'm so aware that some of these basic concepts, uh, and this would be true of any nationality, but certainly that Americans bring, simply don't function here. Right. I mean, identity mm-hmm. is a different. It's not just a different notion; it's a different experience. Um, I, I, I think it 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 begins with a, a relationship to history that's that's very foreign to the American sensibility. Uh, the greatness of America is that everyone could start all over again, and you can rewrite right. your, your your biography. Uh, you can you can uh, you can pick and choose how much of your past, your own personal past, or your your family or national past you you choose to carry uh, here there there is not that luxury uh, that's that 's not only true for israel it 's very true for the middle east uh, history um, you know events that happened a uh, hundred or two hundred years ago are considered virtually contemporary here mm-hmm. because the the extended memory of of jews and, and Arabs goes back uh, a contiguous memory. Uh, uh, to uh, to millennia, so you you the 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 strength of that experience is that you 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 don't feel you don't feel cut off. Your 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 reality tends to be pretty defined. The the obviously the negative uh, expression of that is is that you you can get boxed in to the past and and your options can be can be very narrow. Mm-hmm. I- it also seems to me that you can get lost in the complexity of it. I mean, right? Which past do you choose to get boxed into? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, so in the, in the old city yesterday, uh, uh, right? Every many of the religious, you know, the, a mosque used to be a church. A church used to be a mosque. I mean, there have been layers of history. Mm-hmm. There was a very striking moment to me where um, our tour guide was to telling the story, I believe, of the. Dome of the Rock. I mean, one of those. I mean, but it could have been any number of places. And and then he said, and then the Crusaders came, right? The Crusaders came and they put crosses mm-hmm. on the roof. And he said, but they were only here for two hundred years, so they really couldn't make much of a difference. I mean, he said that absolutely. They were only exactly. here for two hundred years, so they couldn't do very much. Right. But he but he also still feels the outrage of that. Yes. I mean that was it, true. It was a thousand years ago, but it was know, a thousand years ago. Did. It was only two hundred years. <laughs> 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 but then there are the moments mm-hmm. in the old city, which, as an American, I think you experience as very baffling. And again, this goes to the difference of our histories and the relative youth, you know, and cl- that kind of the clean slate of American history. Although, of course, it wasn't a clean slate. So he was pointing out one of the few buildings where uh, on one level there's a Christian family and lives in and on another level the Jewish family and another level a Muslim family. And he said, you know, this is so unusual that they go, they walk through the same door. They have a key to the same door to enter Mm -hmm. the places they live in. And that's hard. That's hard to grasp um, Mm -hmm. for an American you know, it's interesting. Just I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but just listening to you, I, 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 I think that our challenge here, for those of us who live with a, within an historical consciousness, 
is to prove that one can can honor the past and and be in dialogue with the past but not be imprisoned by it. That, I think, is really the challenge of of Arabs and Jews in this conflict. Mm. And and I, look, as someone who grew up in America and, and, and left... Uh, and I, you grew up in Brooklyn. I mean, you know what it's like where all kinds of people are living on top of each other all yes, the time. Yes, and I right? grew up in the 60s. And I, and, I, and I bring that sensibility with me here. So in a way, I feel that, that clash between um, the expansiveness and the, the limitless possibility of, of the American present and future and that deep sense of, of honoring the past and, and, mm-hmm. and how important it is and not to feel oneself adrift mm-hmm. in, in history. So in some way, I, I, I suppose that the journey that I took into Islam and Christianity was an attempt to, to, to bring together that American sensibility with, with the reality of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's actually very useful to me, Krista. Mm. Thank you. Mm. So let's talk about the complex reality of Jewish identity, Israeli identity, which again is multi-layered. And also the categories, even if you can use words like left and right, center, they don't translate into... So I wonder if you would kind of translate, uh, describe that landscape. Um, well, I... the. Um think the that built in to Israeli identity is a fundamental clash of of sensibilities. The religious sensibility sees the creation of Israel, the existence of Israel as a miracle, as a, as a providential act, uh, the fulfillment of of uh, of prophecies that go back thousands of years. And especially the the circumstances under which uh, Israel was created, that we moved from from the Holocaust directly into sovereignty, uh, which is to say, from our worst historical nightmare into our greatest historical fantasy dream, right. and and the ability, I think, of of the Jewish people to make that abrupt shift, uh, this kind of uh, alchemy of Turning a nightmare into dream uh, is is the the stuff of of Judaism. It, it it is the validation of Judaism, and I think that any previous generation of believing Jews who would have been able to see our time would have instantly identified this as the fulfillment of of, of all that Judaism claimed would happen and believed about how the Jewish story would would end. Sorry. So so in that sense the 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 religious Jew looks at at the state of Israel and sees the fulfillment of of what of what he or she believes. The secular Israeli looks at exactly what you talked about the how how reality looks can, can, can look so different. Right. It isn't only between Arabs and Jews. Right. It's within, it's, it's among Jewish Israelis. So the secular Israeli looks at the same event, the founding of Israel, and says Israel became a reality only once the Jews revolted against passivity, 
against this, the religious faith that God will one day, through the Messiah, and gather the Jews back to this land. And we took our fate in our own hands. Zionism was a profoundly secular movement. Right. And so the, the secular Israeli says, the state is, the, is proof of, of the absence of, of, a, of a guiding hand in history. So it's, it's, and that's built into the existence of Israel, let and, alone all of the, the issues that, that, that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis here. I'm just going to cough it. <coughs> Could I have some water? Yeah, yeah. water and um, while we're pausing, <coughs> is there any chance that you could get the, the construction? stone grinding outside might be able to release it? Okay. okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, those guys, you don't interfere with. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about the, them and the spectrum of Israeli identity. Good. Could I run to the bathroom for a moment? Yes, do. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I don't know why I got this tickle in my throat. So I feel like this is great because I'm taking him out of the uh, role of, yeah. right? No, and it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's educational. Yeah. It's also, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do you kind of justify what you talk about these international trips? Yeah. Even being in a place, your questions and yeah. experiences different yeah. right? if we would have yeah. had this in the studio. Yeah. And I'm really seeing the value in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. I find this really um, promising, and I mean, his personal history reflects a certain, you know, from kibbutz of the '60s mm-hmm. to now, and it, so it's a history that's emblematic mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. lot of people, and mm-hmm. one that yeah. you don't remember. Right. I mean, I think it's really good. Yeah. Um, and even I know, I know, I know, I know, and I think. Um, I mean, even this stuff about def- just what he just said, it, it like took me this long and I had to be here to ask the right question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So now I can suddenly see what question. <laughs> Tell me when. Yeah? Okay. So what's the proportion? Do you know what the proportion is of secular Israeli, Jew- uh, secular or religious Israelis? It, it, there's a spectrum here. And it isn't a, a society divided between secular and religious. Mm-hmm. That, that tends to be the perception abroad, but it's much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. So you have um, up to 10% ultra-Orthodox. Uh, I think the figures are lower, but that's what's usually used. Uh, another 10 or 15% uh, modern Orthodox. And then you have a very large percentage of traditional. And traditional can mean anything, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's people who identify themselves as traditional who have some relationship to, um, to Judaism but don't live a strictly religious life. And hardcore secular, I would say, is probably 20%. Okay. Um, large proportion of them are Russian immigrants, maybe 25%. Mm, that's interesting. So one thing you said last night I found really interesting, that for Jews, peoplehood is a religious category. Mm. So even a secular Jew has an understanding of peoplehood that would oh, look deeply. religious to someone else. I think that's true. And, and, and the, the willingness of Israelis to sacrifice for this country, uh, to 
to, to fight one war after another, to send our children to the army, uh, is, is in some sense motivated by, by um, I, I don't know, let's not use the word religious, but certainly a kind of a spiritual feeling, a sense of, of connectedness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a certain transcendent stake in, in, in this story. And, and a sense that this story means something that's really worth defending. Right. But I would also say that it's, it's not just that, that many secular Israelis uh, feel a stake in Judaism. It's that Judaism itself validates a, a, a non-religious Jewish identity right. to some right. extent. Right. I, don't want, I don't want to overstate it, mm-hmm. but, but if you are a... An, a Jewish atheist, mm-hmm. and that's true globally. This statement oh, you just made—it's so. not so. just in Israel. No, right. of course. And you, and you have a sense of attachment to the Jewish people, to the Jewish story. You raise your children with Jewish values. Then you are a, depending on who you ask, but a, a Jew in reasonably good standing. You're you're certainly part of the story. You're mm-hmm. you you can be a heretic, and not be totally cut off from Judaism. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know that I did some we, we did some work a show on Einstein and then we did a book that kind of grew out of that I this do year know, yeah. and, and and one of the interesting pieces of that was um, Einstein's his spiritual imagination I mean he did not have any he didn't believe in a transcendent God but he did have a spiritual rich yes. spiritual imagination and an ethical imagination and and part of the story of him that was so interesting to trace is how as he went through his life he his Jewish identity became more and more important to him. Mm-hmm. And um, now partly because he was a Jew who had to leave yes. Germany. I mean, you know, his, he, his Jewish identity became important whether he wanted it to or not in mm-hmm. that instance. But I remember something he said that he came to revere more and more about Judaism. Was that it, This is a paraphrase, I think, but I mean, like that, that, that at, at the essence it is about Life as we live it, as we live it and can know it, mm. and nothing else. That it, it was that ethical. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was that how do you live rather than what do you believe? Mm-hmm. Emphasis in Judaism. That even as someone who didn't believe in a personal God, uh, and was suspicious of transcendence in that sense, could find to be an essential way to be in the world. Yeah, I think it comes. I think you can trace that to the seminal moment of the formation of the Jewish people, which was the revelation at Mount Sinai. And uh, the biblical text is, has, is, has this very strange moment where, where the Jews say to God, we will do and we will listen or we will obey. And the doing comes before the understanding. <laughs> right. And, and I think that that's really, in some sense, wired into, into the Jewish experience, that there is a sense that you, you live the life, you, you, um, you, engage, you engage with Judaism, and it, it, it creates its own reality. Now, I, 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 I respect that, and, I, and I, I, I appreciate it, but I'm not fully satisfied with mm-hmm. it. Uh, as a religious Jew, as a, as someone who who is is connected to the mystical side of Judaism, and and who feels that that 
the quest for a living relationship with a personal God uh, is too often displaced in modern Judaism. Mm -hmm. We too often emphasize the disworldliness of Judaism, and, and there's a whole vast tradition that we've displaced, which is um, the same mystical needs and longings that one finds in other religious traditions and has been buried mm -hmm. in Judaism uh, by, by a modern rationalist uh, Jewish approach. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not fully... I'm not fully with Einstein on that. Yeah. <laughs> if I may disagree yeah, with him. You may. <laughs> um, I think he also was very clear that he was an expert on physics and not an expert <laughs> on religion. Um, how do you think about, the, you know, this, this complex uh, reality of identity that we've been talking about, even these divisions within Judaism and, and the... the, uh, the these parallel identities of mm -hmm. Christians, Jews, Muslims, even in the, in the, especially, let's say, in the city like Jerusalem. How do you think, how do you think about God in terms of that kind of identity? Or what, what aspects of the tradition for you speak to that? Um, both in terms of how you explain it or how you might find that unsatisfactory. I don't know. Do you mean in terms of, 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 a Jewish approach to religious pluralism or to understanding the different faces of God? Is this Well, I don't know. Maybe that is that one way you think about it, that there are different faces of God. How so. do you how do you look at this fact of yeah, as I say, parallel as opposed to even coexistent uh, identities, even within Judaism, and think about the nature of God and kind of add those things up. In terms of, um, of my relationship as a Jew with other faiths, the constant struggle being in this reality, being, being in, in Jerusalem, is to be rooted in your own tradition, in your, in your own faith. And, and Jerusalem demands that because, because everyone here is rooted in their specificity. And... and how do I, as a religious Jew, manage to... And this is really an extension of what we were speaking about earlier. How do I manage to be faithful to, to my understanding of reality and at the same time accommodate alternative readings of reality? And Jerusalem does not take kindly to religious pluralism. The way in which we, we measure religious tolerance in this city is by the distance that we're able to safely maintain mm -hmm. among the faiths. And there's good historic reason for that, because the more the, more the faiths get closer, the more they touch each other, the more they, they start to infringe on each other's sacred spaces. So you try to maintain distance here. And I don't think that that model is, is suitable anymore for uh, for this city at this time, I, I believe very strongly that Jerusalem needs to be a a model for a more expansive uh, sense of religious identity and pluralism. But I I struggle with that because when when you're so caught up in your own story, especially 
in, in a situation of conflict. You can't separate religion from, from the, the conflict that we're living, from the mm-hmm. fears, uh, the, 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 the historic grievances that we're all carrying in mm-hmm. this conflict. Mm-hmm. And how do I relate to, to other religions from a more universal place without sacrificing my particular identity? And Jerusalem, if you can really, if you can manage, at least sometimes, to overcome your own fears and, and, and grievances, it's all here. It's, it's, so, it's so obvious when, when, you, when you open yourself to it, what, what God is saying to humanity in this city. And, and, and my understanding is that God is saying to us, I've spoken to each of you faith communities in, in a language that you can understand, but look around you and look at the devotion that's surrounding you, and how can you not be moved? Uh, how can I, as a Jew, not be moved by the monastic communities mm. that, are, that, that cherish this city? How can I not be moved by, by the love and, and the devotion that Muslims have lavished on what, what for me is the focal point of sacred space on the planet, which is the Temple Mount. Mm. And look at how Islam has beautified the Temple Mount. Mm. So it's, it's certainly, that building is certainly more beautiful than, uh, than any synagogue that mm. I know. And, and I can cherish that as a religious person, uh, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Other times I feel threatened by the Muslim presence on the Temple Mount, uh, which is trying to exclude me which says you as a Jew don't have a place here. So it's so complicated. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and it's not just a Jewish complication, right? So, for example, when we were in the Old City yesterday, I asked our tour guide, who's a Palestinian Christian, do the different kinds of Christians here ever worship together, right? Oh, Did they celebrate Easter together? Not. I mean, so you have the Copts, the Armenians, the Roman Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, right? Um, and uh, it was almost a question he hadn't... He almost didn't know how to hear the question. And, um, right, so that's this reality of how, oh, this, how these faiths, even these different kinds of Christians and Jews, uh, uh, have experienced life for hundreds of years. That you, it's, it, you mentioned it, earlier that your tour guide had said that... Uh, the, um, that there's a military presence on Easter morning. And uh, I've been to the Holy Sepulchre on Easter. And the, the, the reason for that presence is to keep the peace among the different Christian communities. Right. Uh, there have been terrible incidents, uh, on Easter especially, of uh, Cop- Coptic monks and Ethiopian monks attacking each other with crosses. Hmm. And, you know, the answer he did finally give me was interesting, too. The example he could think of was um, when recently Coptic Christians in Egypt uh, were attacked, I think. By Muslims. I think it was in Egypt. By Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, by Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dominicans here had actually called together a pan-Christian service hmm. to... Worship together and to stand in solidarity with the Coptic Christians. Of Egypt. That's a Jerusalem miracle. 
It, it, it really is, because that's, that's the kind of event. That's, that's messianic. Hmm. That is messianic Jerusalem. And uh, all of the different groups finding some way of praying together without losing their distinctive identity. I think that has to be the message of Jerusalem in this, in this time. So, yes, I keep thinking of this beautiful Celtic image of thin places. Do you, are you aware of that language? No. Uh, that there are thin places, thin times, where the veil between the temporal and the eternal mm. is worn thin, where it comes through. Mm. Um, but it's a very beautiful, gentle image. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think of it in terms of, oh, I've thought of it at being in monasteries, right, where you, you feel there's, there's a presence. Uh, you feel that the distance between humanity and the divine, whatever that is, is not quite so vast. And it's as much a, an experience as something you can put words around. Um, another place that phrase got used was uh, uh, there was a little chapel next to Ground Zero. Where a lot of where the emergency workers were treated, oh, I've been there. Yeah. yeah, and people refer to that as a thin place. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful language. <laughs> it's wonderful language, and it keeps coming to me here. <laughs> but it feels to me like it's much too mild for the reality of Jerusalem. I mean, this mm-hmm. is almost like a place where the veil is, where it's s- seeping and. <laughs> Flooding. It's, 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 Do you know what I'm saying? It's a thin place and, it's too and a much. thick reality. You know, it's that's too much. Exactly. It's like humanity can't handle much. it. Yeah. And that, I mean, and, yeah. tell me what you react yeah, to this yeah. because mean, that, I'm trying to. I'm, I think, especially maybe for people who are not religious, the idea that that this holy city and these where these most sacred sites for so many people are concentrated should be a place where these great transcendent virtues of religion should come to the fore. You know, Krista, the, the, the religion and the place where I feel most uh, in resonance with outside of this land is Hinduism in India. Mm. Because I think that, that there is a, a basic wisdom in, in India about the nature of this world. And and I, I, there's something in me, and this is a, my, my strong Israeli sensibility, uh, that, that rejects the Western need for religion to be nice and safe. I understand that. I understand that need. But I see religion as, as struggling with the, the, the deepest contradictions of our being souls trapped in bodies, mm. of our being in this world where we don't fundamentally belong. And, and, this, and Hinduism understands that. And I think Judaism understands that. The Bible is not a pretty book. It's, 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 we were talking it's about this. It's a messy this. book. It's a really messy yeah. book. The, the heroes of the Bible... Just like human life is messy. Exactly. And, and so... I, I, I feel very strongly that the Jews have returned home in order to, in some sense, try to get the Bible right this time. Mm-hmm. And the Bible is not, a, a, in the end, an uplifting story of the success of the Jewish people. It's, it's, it's a very strange ancient myth 
because it's not celebratory. It's, it's, it's relentlessly self-critical. And, and I feel that we are, in some sense, writing the next chapter of the Bible in our return here. And, and that means that we have to carry all of our history into this reality. We have to try to, in some sense, make sense of it. What does it mean that we came home right after the Holocaust? What does it mean that we're in the middle of a seemingly hopeless struggle with another indigenous people that, that has a powerful claim to the same land that we have a powerful claim to? How do we resolve that? All of the issues of religion and state... That, that, that's convulsing the whole world and that's concentrated with particular vehemence in our lives here, partly because this is such a small place and everything is so intimate here and everything matters all the time. Right, right. There's no break here. Right, right. And, and, and so, but I see that as a fulfillment of what the Jews are supposed to be doing in, in the world at this time. And that, for me, is is not a... The very messiness is the point of it. Mm. You said something last night um, about... I think this is echoing what you just said, uh, that this is a place where the human story is being played out with particular intensity. Right. And that what's at stake here is is precisely an important part of what makes us human, what makes all of us human. Yes. This is a place that... that Change the world, and and the the religions, the, the 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 prophecy, the force that came out of this land, two thousand years ago, has helped define what humanity is, and and I think that that's why the world is so riveted to this place. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 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 sometimes in absurd ways, we have more journalists here, foreign journalists, than almost any other place in the world. Uh, every Every, every little shift in the conflict is front page news around right. the world. Right. And, and it, we're, we're living under a microscope. And Israelis are driven mad by that. And, and to some extent, they're right when they say, you know, there's a double standard. You apply this relentless moral critique to Israel that you certainly don't, don't apply to our Arab neighbors. And virtually no other country in the world is subjected to that same relentless critique. Uh, on the other hand, as a religious person, I feel, well, if that's, if that's the nature of the game, if we're, we're playing for very high stakes here. And, and Judaism makes some very powerful claims about the nature of Jewish history. And, and in our self-understanding, the Jewish story is, is about God taking a people, which is a random group of people, no better or no worse than any other people, and using this people as a test case for what happens when you have divine intimacy with human beings. It's not a group of saints, the Jewish right, people. Right. And, 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 it, and that's precisely the point. And in the Jewish understanding of this very intense and often unhappy relationship between God and the Jewish people, we're a test case for the eventual divine intimacy and revelation with all of humanity, which is the messianic age. So, so 
we make some very powerful claims about the nature of Jewish history. And I feel looking at Israel's reality that, well, okay, well, how else could this story after 4,000 years possibly possibly turn out except with this people in this impossible situation <laughs> back in its land and the whole world peering in all the time and judging every move that we make. Mm. We set that story up for ourselves mm. and we have to, to some extent, accept that as the ground rules. Mm. <clears throat> Just This is kind of a personal um this is all personal. Yeah, it's all personal. And this is me being personal. I'm, I'm moving out. I, I'm not, I'm also not in my neutral. Really, this yeah. is, you know, rock bottom. So let me tell you, so this is uh, my historical perspective, which is much, much narrower. But So I spent uh, most of the 80s in Berlin, in divided Berlin, which you and I have discussed before. Uh, that, that experience, uh, I think, gave me a bigger sense of history than Americans often have, um, being in that place with such a tortured, dramatic history. And then... Were you there when the wall fell? No, I I left right before the wall fell. But I was in those years when the... I was in those years when everything was becoming fluid, but you didn't know how it would go. It was very intense. And um, and it was also a a focal point in that era of... It it was like a fault line. It was like a fault line of -hmm. of the world geopolitically. Mm -hmm. And, And... so what keeps coming back to me being here is that experience of now that was one people with one language, one history, but but divided, utterly divided into two uh, economic, political, ideological systems, uh, and divided by a wall, which cut through what had been people's backyards, you know, um, what had been the center of the city. Um, so that's coming, you know, I, I, I'm having this strange uh, memory of that here. Um, and what's also coming to me about that is, um, so I'm just kind of throwing this out at you. That division and that wall was one cost of the Holocaust. I mean, the story's more complicated than that. It wasn't just a cost of the mm-hmm. Holocaust. But mm-hmm. that was, you know, there's a direct line between that and the price the Germans paid mm-hmm. for that horror. And then it's so strange to me to be here across the world and then, you know, 30 years later, um, and there's another wall, which is also... A consequence, you know, there's a direct line between the Holocaust and this wall. Um, it's just, um, and, and yet, and, and, and I, you know, I was reading, I don't know if you, there was a big article in the New Yorker last week about uh, Haaretz, the newspaper. Yeah, Did you so, read that? Yeah. So in that article, there are, and I know that that, that was about, the, you know, the left, leftist voice of, of Israel and Somebody in there said... The f- uh, actually, the far left. The far left, left. okay. Yeah, and which, you know, we don't even want to get into. So, uh, <laughs> trying to grasp that. You know, someone in that article said, uh, it's the Palestinians, the, the Palestinians have paid the price of that experience of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that, that's one way to see this. So, I don't know, all of this is kind of swirling around Can I in respond my head. To that? And I, yeah, <laughs> I want you to respond to that. I, I think that that is a... a fundamental misreading of reality here. Uh, 
look, the Holocaust is is a part of um, of Israeli identity. There's no way around it. But Israelis play out the Holocaust in a very different way, I think, than, than diaspora Jews. Uh, Israelis don't see being the victim as having any nobility. And that's, that's very contrary to, to the, the glorification of the victim in, in contemporary Western culture. I, Israelis despise uh, the thought of being victims. And in some sense, uh, uh, Israel is a response to that. I, I, I don't think Israel's existence is a response to the Holocaust. Uh, Israel's existence is a response to the fact that the Jews never forgot this land and always kept faith with this land. Uh, the Holocaust explains uh, why we fight, why we, why, why we defend ourselves with such, um, with such commitment. Uh, it doesn't explain why we exist. Now, in terms of, um, of the wall, of the security Yeah, and you know, barrier, I'm not even saying that. I'm saying that, though, in some... That it's a consequence. It, 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 uh, it's a consequence of many things. You know, but, it's it's it's. But it's one of these consequences. Of- you know, one of the tragedies of this conflict is that we almost succeeded in putting the Holocaust behind us. Uh, the nineties uh, uh, were really uh, the decade of Israeli optimism, the peace process, uh, Israel establishing relations with countries that we'd never had uh, diplomatic connections with before, uh, the sense of, of possibility, of, of a happy ending to the Jewish story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the year 2000 came along, when, uh, and this, of course, is, is the Israeli reading of, of, of what happened in the year 2000, which is that uh, we offered a two-state solution, I think a, a very reasonable offer, certainly from, that's my reading of what happened, and the Palestinian leadership not only rejected uh, the Israeli offer, but uh, launched a four-year suicide bombing campaign. And the collapse of the peace process, followed by the the launching of that four-year terrorism uh, campaign, shattered uh, my generation's optimism. And the security barrier that exists, and that and that wall is outside of my porch. I mean, you, right. you, you saw it, right. and and it is, it's a it's it's a daily reminder to me of 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 the tragedy of this conflict, of of the limit of of our limitations, our human limitations, that it's come to this, that we have to build a wall. But on the other hand, I affirm that I need that wall to keep my family safe because I raised two teenagers during the years of the suicide bombings. So, and if the Holocaust was somewhere there in my, in my consciousness, the Jews are under threat again, I suppose so, but it, it wasn't an overt, an overt sense. I would say though, that, that if, if you are looking to make a connection, maybe the connection would be this, that the, the Arab world, and especially the Palestinians, had the misfortune of being one enemy too many for the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. That they came right after... The, the fact that the Arab world tried to destroy 
uh, the Jewish state in 1948, three years after the Holocaust, uh, was unfortunate timing from mm-hmm. their point of view, mm-hmm. because that came at the moment when the Jewish people had decided this is enough, and whatever it takes for us to survive, we're going to do. And if you say you're going to throw us into the sea, then there are consequences to that. And that is how this conflict played out. So in that sense, yes, there is a, 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 a price, there is a repercussion from the Holocaust, but it could have been different. Mm. And that's why I go back to the 90s. And I know that for me, as, even as a, as a child of, of, of a survivor, I tried in the 90s to really put the Holocaust behind me. And I made a conscious decision, I'm not going to raise my children, certainly in the way that I was raised, of, of the Holocaust being central to their, to their Jewish identity. I did not want the Holocaust to be the focal point of their Jewish identity. And, and, and I barely discussed it with them when they were growing up. And then the suicide bombings came, and, and I think this happened to Israeli society generally. We felt this is a Jewish moment again. Mm-hmm. And what made it even more devastating for us was that not only had we offered to end the occupation and accepted a two-state solution with a redivided Jerusalem, and not only had the Palestinians responded with a terrorism campaign, but much of the world blamed us for the ongoing occupation as if nothing had changed, as if we hadn't tried to stop it, to end the occupation, as if we hadn't made the offer, and as if the the moral onus hadn't shifted at that point to the Palestinian leadership. And that drove us crazy here. You know, um, the intensity of... I've been here three days, and uh, we've been talking about this, and you've just... I mean, this is another... uh, description of an aspect of it uh how do you live with this intensity it's beautiful isn't it it's beautiful (laughs) beautiful country it is a beautiful country (laughs) it is a beautiful country but just the act of living here and i I think that's true for everyone who lives here whoever whoever they're planted for all these different reasons look everyone has has a coping strategy and um if you go to Tel Aviv, and Tel Aviv is, is very different from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's coping strategy is to go deeper into, into a search for meaning. Obviously, I'm speaking in, in absurdly broad generalizations, but Tel Aviv's strategy for coping is live for today. <laughs> Tel Aviv is a very hedonistic mm-hmm. city. And uh, it's a great city. It's, it's, it's Israel's fun capital, but it's, it's in some sense ludicrous. You know, it's, it's living in, in, in a self-conscious denial of, <laughs> of reality. So, you know, in, if, if you're asking me personally how, how I cope with this, it's, it's very interesting because uh, I, I, I'd say that I cope with it in, 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 in several ways, which... Uh, one one way is as a is as a writer and 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 a journalist, which means that in, in some sense I'm an observer, and there's no more interesting place to be an observer than uh, than here than than, than in, in Israel. 
So I'm, I'm stimulated by, by this conflict. You can understand that, Krista. It's, mm-hmm. it's, there's something in, in, in the journalists that, that, that thrives on being in a place of intensity. Uh, another way in which I, I cope is, um, is the spiritual seeker side of, of my life, which is the sense of what a privilege it is to be here and what a powerful place. The, the intensity here is not only political, it's also spiritual. And the more that I'm able, and it's, and, and it's, it's very difficult to move from that political intensity to connect to the spiritual intensity. But when I'm able to touch that place, it, it, it helps me cope with the political intensity, with the, with the fears and the, the, the terror of, 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 this, of the reality here. And, and I suppose another way in which I, I cope with it is just simply in my daily life, as an Israeli, as a, as a citizen of Jerusalem, every so often I'll be reminded, and it's, and it's, it's fleeting, it's, it's, it certainly is not a constant, but every so often I'll, I'll realize that my daily life is, from the perspective of Jewish history, a miracle. And that what is for me the most ordinary act of going, taking my children to school, uh, driving past the old city walls and being in a traffic jam in the morning. Uh, this, is, this is the happy ending of Jewish history. And, and what a privilege it is to, to, to be living the Jewish story at this moment. So I would say that, that again, that's not... Uh, most Israelis don't... Most Israelis live their daily life as daily life. But I think that running through this society is this undercurrent of, um, of the miraculous. Now, that's also a source of angst for Israelis because we, we, we're on some level, we're always measuring Israeli reality to what the expectations of past generations of Jews were of what this place would be when we finally came home. And in the Jewish imagination, the return home was so ex- would be so extraordinary that it could only be understood in a messianic category. Right. So we're living in a non-messianic reality, but in some sense it is a messianic reality. And, and that's the tension and the, the, in some way, the joy of, of being an Israeli and also the unhappiness, mm-hmm. the frustration of being an Israeli. And, you know, as we're speaking, uh, these tensions and, and even the, vi- the violence uh, that is part of <clears throat> the reality here uh, goes on. I mean, there was an attack while we were here, in, of a, a family was killed in Nablus, a, a family of settlers, or a par- parents and three children. People are reeling from that. Um, there are these uprisings in um, places like Egypt and Tunisia and Libya, all playing out differently in those Things different keep countries. Here. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> You know, your despair comes through, as does 
uh, I, I think, a hope. I've heard you say a few times in the last couple of days that that in the short term you're not hopeful, but that you you do have some hope in the medium and long term. I mean, talk to me about how you can envision that, because even for all of the the excitement and the you know the vastness of of what it means, just that Israel exists for you. Um, there's there's so much, uh, both things that happen in real time every day, and that weight of history behind them, that makes it hard, impossible, to imagine real breakthrough. I think that the the source of my short term despair and of my long term hope uh, is the same, and it's and it's rooted in religion, and the question. The question for this region, and maybe, maybe in some way for the world, is, is religion going to be um, part of healing or is it going to intensify the, the, destruct, the destructive process? And certainly the way things appear to be going in the Middle East, uh, religion is very much part of the problem. Um, more and more this conflict is becoming overtly religious. Uh, the 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 front line war against Israel is being led by by jihadist movements by Hamas Hezbollah uh, Iran of course so that the even the language of this conflict in the last ten years or so with the suicide bombings in the early two thousands has really changed it's no longer pretending to be a national conflict over land it's very much. A, a, a religious conflict, and on and on the Jewish side, we have uh, certainly the um, uh, the the settler movement is is fused by by religious claims. Uh, although within Israeli Judaism, <clears throat> there's there's been for many years a very important debate <clears throat> about the place of religion in in the peace process, and um, and. What, whether one is permitted to exchange sacred land for peace. And there is a substantial body of religious opinion that affirms a land for peace agreement. And I think that Islam is capable of making that same a transition, or at least part of Islam is. And, and what gives me hope is that I, I believe in faith. I believe in the basic wisdom of, uh, of religion to rise to the occasion. Not immediately, and not always, and not before necessarily exhausting all of the negative capabilities. <laughs> but I think that more and more religious people are feeling a, a justified sense of shame. And what I find hopeful about this moment in history, and this doesn't only apply to our conflict, is that with the creation of, 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 a, of a secular space, religion now occupies a common ground. Because in the past, we're, in, mm-hmm. in pre-secular times, the only way to identify yourself uh, against others was, I believe in this and you, and you believe my God is this and your God is that. Now we have a whole space in which there is no God. So that those of us who believe in God are, are, however unhappily, put in the same space. 
And that means on, on some level, we're all implicated in each other's mm. spiritual failures. So that if, if, if there's a suicide bomber uh, in the, who, who, who kills innocents in the name of, of the Muslim God, for secular, for, for, for the secular world, that isn't just a crime that implicates Islam. Right. It implicates religion. Look at what religion does. Mm-hmm. And that really creates a, a, a forced commonality among religious people that I think is, is going to create the grounds, has to create the grounds, mm. for us to, to, to move toward a more pluralistic understanding. Mm. Yeah, that's a very messy, uh, rea- reality-based view of, of how hope becomes possible. And you said something very striking um, the other night when we were speaking. You said you also had an, I- uh, an idea that change, at least in the hearts of the Israelis, might be something that could be instantaneous, right? You you talked about the moment when Sadat was mm-hmm. it? Did he come to Jerusalem? Or, oh, yeah. And you said that that was uh, kind of a, a kind of a, a miraculous, sudden change of heart and mind, and that that for you, uh, even with all of this complexity that we've been describing, that that's also how you imagine uh, how the future might look different. And not only in the hearts. Okay. Okay. What is it? Can and then we're going to... This will be the last question. This is the last question? Yeah, I think so. Well, well then if okay, you want to say something else, you can. No, I think um, Kate, do you want to... We need to tell David Hartman that we're still running a little... We're not, I'd say 1045, because it's 1020 now. Oh, okay. It's a, yeah, 1120. 11, so, can I just go out here to the reception desk? Yeah, sure. sure. Okay. Yeah, because I just... Let's wait 15 yeah. minutes. Okay, yeah. Hmm... <laughs> well, we'll talk later. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Not only in the hearts of Israelis, I think very much uh, in the hearts of Arabs, too, if we're using Sadat as a, uh, as a reference point. And, and, and I think it's worth going back to that moment. Yeah, would you tell that story? Because, because it's, 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 I think, one of the great lost moments of, uh, of transcendence. Uh, in, uh, in, in the recent history of the Middle East. Uh, in 1977, November 1977, Anwar Sadat, who was the president of Egypt, uh, flew to, to Israel and was welcomed by Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and given literally and figuratively the red carpet treatment and he spoke in the in Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Israelis lined the streets, waving Egyptian flags. Uh, the radio played uh, peace songs. Uh, and then Menachem Begin went to visit Egypt. I think he was in, went to Alexandria. And the same thing happened over there. Tens of thousands of Egyptians cheered the Israeli prime minister. Now, bear in mind who Anwar Sadat was and who Menachem Begin was. Four years earlier, Anwar Sadat had launched a surprise attack against Israel on Yom Kippur, our holiest day. There was no more hated man in this country than Anwar Sadat. Mm. Menachem Begin, who had just come to power a few months earlier, was the first Likud prime minister who broke 29 years of labor hegemony 
the Labour Party, the left had ruled this country. For the first time, we had a right-wing prime minister. And the media around the world, and, and much of the media in Israel, uh, greeted Menachem Begin's rise to power, saying, the hawks have taken over, and it's just a matter of time before the Middle East is going to be plunged into the next war. And instead, Sadat comes to Israel, is embraced as a hero. There are streets named after Sadat in this country. And Menachem Begin responds by withdrawing from every inch of the Sinai Desert, which was almost four times the territorial size of Israel, and which Israel had conquered in the Six-Day War as in a preemptive measure. And Israelis were convinced that we're never going to leave the Sinai. That was our military buffer with Egypt. Mm. So that was a moment of, of almost messianic impossibility. And, and every so often in, in, in the history of Israel, we find ourselves in a moment that's almost metaphysical, meta-historical. The, the, I experienced that uh, with, the, with the, the mass airlift of Ethiopian Jews. It happened shortly after I, I, I moved to Israel in 1982. And then suddenly thousands of Ethiopian Jews barefoot in white robes, wide-eyed, step off of these planes. They'd never seen a plane, let alone been on a plane. And they step, from, they step out from Ethiopia into, into the postmodern world. But for them, this is Zion. This is the biblical story. And it was one of those moments that we, we all realized we're in a story that's more than just the conflict or our daily life. There's something else going on here. There's a transcendent dimension. And that's what gives me hope here. And certainly that's what brought me to Israel in the first place. And for all of the, the disappointments and the failures and the tragedies that, that, that I've experienced in the 30 years that I've lived here, the sense of the transcendent and the, the possibility of the miraculous remains as alive for me as, as ever. Hmm. Is there anything else you want to say? Anything we didn't talk about? Those are fine last words. So I, I, I think I'm pretty spent. So. Okay, yeah. Thank you, Yossi. Thank you. Yossi Klein-Halevi. Thank you. Mm. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for, for doing that. Mm.